Welcome to Tax Notes Talk, a podcast from Tax Notes, the leading source of tax news, information, and analysis. Welcome to the podcast. I'm David Stewart, Editor-in-Chief of Tax Notes Today International. This week, the other DST. While we've done a number of episodes on the OECD's two-pillar solution for taxing the digital economy, a subject that we haven't really delved too far into is one of the problems it set out to solve. Digital services taxes arose in a number of jurisdictions to prevent companies from escaping taxation where their customers are located. But solving one problem often leads to others, and the OECD's Pillar 1 was put forward to bring order to that chaos. Joining me now to talk more about this is Tax Notes contributing editor Nana Ama Sarfo. Ama, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Dave. It's really great to be back. So why don't we start off with just the the basic definition. What is a digital services tax? That's a really great question. So broadly speaking, a digital services tax is a tax that's applied to gross revenue generated from digital services or goods offered in a country. So the definition of a digital service or good varies depending on the country. But what we've seen is that DSTs are taxing activity like online streaming services, cloud computing services, online gaming, online advertising, online intermediation services. So all of that to say that the category of as to what constitutes a digital service or good is pretty broad. And countries are implementing DSTs because of the way in which international tax rules currently work. And that is that a company must have a physical presence within a country to be taxable there. But as we know, within our digital economy, digital companies are operating in countries around the world without any need to open physical offices or physical operations. And that has created a lot of resentment within governments witnessing digital companies like social media networks become very large and very successful based off of users in their country, but yet they're not able to tax that online activity. And I mention all of that background because governments that have created DSTs have generally structured them to apply to the largest digital companies that are able to meet really high global and domestic revenue thresholds. So they're basically targeting the Googles and Amazons and Facebooks, and they generally apply to foreign companies and not domestic companies that are already taxable within their jurisdictions, although some countries have implemented or have introduced uh, DSTs that have some combinations of that. So another thing to note regarding digital services taxes is that they're applied at a relatively low rate, around a 3% tax rate, but some countries have certainly levied higher rates that are double that or even higher. Okay, so it seems that it's the change in the world where like all of our activity has now become this other thing that it wasn't before and governments are trying to get just a piece of tax revenue. So so what is the problem with that system? So there actually are a few major concerns, but I would highlight two interrelated ones. So one is the belief amongst digital companies that DSTs are discriminatory, that they are discriminating against large foreign tech companies, which are predominantly US-based tech companies. 
And the other concern is that they are widely viewed as destabilizing because they are created outside of standing tax treaties. So there is no bilateral agreement between a country that decides to create a DST and you know a country where the affected companies are headquartered. They are created unilaterally without any coordination. And then on top of that, as I had mentioned, the precise services that are taxed vary between countries. So that could expose a single taxpayer to a really wide array of tax liabilities around the world and create a lot of complexity because they're not coordinated, they're not bilaterally agreed upon. And then also, you know, it raises the threat of double taxation. So for a number of years now, we've been watching as the OECD attempts to update the international tax regime to match what the modern economy looks like. And so as I understand it, Pillar 1 was in part meant to fix this DST issue. So so what does it do? So Pillar 1 is supposed to fix the DST issue by providing a coordinated set of tax rules for countries to use to apply to the world's largest multinationals, and that group includes digital companies. So with that new set of rules, which are called the Amount A rules, the starting point is that Amount A will apply to multinational companies earning at least 20 billion euros in global turnover, and they must have a profitability level that exceeds 10%. So with those parameters, that means that amount A will apply to about 100 companies. Not all of them are digital companies, but a significant portion of them are, and over half of them are U.S. headquartered companies. So Amount A is supposed to address the DST issue by applying to some of the world's largest digital companies that fall within that 100 company group. And the way in which the Amount A rules work is that they are designed to reallocate 25% of a company's residual profits, so those profits that exceed 10% of revenue. And they reallocate them to jurisdictions where a multinational has nexus, where it has operations using some formulas. And so countries are supposed to follow this set of rules by ratifying a multilateral convention that the OECD is hoping or expecting to release this summer. And then in turn, the countries or jurisdictions that have joined the multilateral convention and want to receive their share of this amount A amount, they are supposed to withdraw any digital services taxes or unilateral measures that they have enacted. So since Pillar 1 and Amount A are still being finalized, we don't know just how much revenue specific jurisdictions expect to receive through Amount A. But the OECD has issued some global calculations. And so under the most recent calculations, the OECD estimates that about $200 billion in profits could be reallocated to market jurisdictions. So that would lead to between $13 billion and $36 billion of global tax revenue gains. And that is a pretty considerable increase from the OECD's 
first set of calculations. So in 2021, the OECD had estimated that about $125 billion of profits would be reallocated. So that's about a 60% increase. Support for this podcast is provided by the University of California Irvine School of Law Graduate Tax Program. This preeminent and innovative program prepares students to practice tax law at the highest level in the U.S. and abroad. Featuring a low student-faculty ratio, cutting-edge technology instruction, and dedicated career support, UCI's graduate tax program helps prepare students for a future in tax law. Program graduates are placed in top tax-related industries, practicing law in many major U.S. cities. Applications are open now. For more information and to apply to this highly selective program, visit law.uci.edu slash gradtax. That's law.uci.edu slash gradtax. All right, so, so where do things stand on finalizing Pillar 1? Well, the OECD has conducted some consultations on Pillar 1, and it has solicited feedback from the international tax community. On the national side, countries need to wait until the OECD releases the multilateral convention. That is expected to be released sometime in the middle of this year or around the summer and go into effect in 2024. We don't have a specific date in 2024 when the MLC will go into effect. And that matters because in October 2021, when most of the inclusive framework made a political agreement on the two pillars, they promised that they would refrain from implementing any new DSTs before December 31st of this year if the multilateral convention had not yet come into force by that date. So since the OECD is now saying 2024, there's a question as to whether or not countries will be able to implement DSTs in that uh, holding period before the MLC goes into effect. And based on feedback to some of the OECD's consultations, we know that some stakeholders are actually asking the inclusive framework to extend that moratorium past December 31st to account for any potential delays. Given all of the challenges in implementing Pillar 1, the second pillar out there that creates a global minimum tax, does that take any of the pressure off or does it not help at all? You know, I think that's a really interesting question because it depends on how one views the entire two-pillar project. So, I mean, of course, the OECD created Pillars 1 and 2 to be a package deal with the understanding that inclusive framework members would implement both parts. But that being said, I have seen some arguments that perhaps the entire project could be split into two separate parts. So if you belong to the camp believing that the pillars can be split, then progress on pillar two might not be as persuasive. But if you believe that pillars one and two are this inseparable deal, then I think that the progress that has been happening with pillar two would certainly help and be persuasive especially for those countries that are really eager to implement this 15% global minimum corporate tax rate. Now, what are you hearing from people about arguments for and against the the OECD's approach under Pillar 1? Well, I think the largest argument in favor is that the OECD's approach would bring or is expected to bring some standardization and coordination to this pretty 
unruly area of digital services taxes and, you know, potentially head off any um, trade conflicts, trade wars. And the argument in favor is that the OECD is approaching this digital services tax issue from a very multilateral perspective, right? I mean, the inclusive framework, in the inclusive framework, uh, 138 jurisdictions have agreed to both pillars, which is not the entire inclusive framework, but it's most of it. But that being said, even amongst the supporters of pillar one, I think there are some who believe that the OECD's approach to digital services taxes perhaps isn't stern enough and could be stronger, and that the OECD could take a much tougher approach in deterring countries from implementing digital services taxes and other unilateral measures. On the other hand, I would say the main argument against the OECD's approach is that it could potentially interfere with countries' sovereignty if it ultimately requires inclusive framework members to commit or promise that they will never impose digital services taxes. Another, I would say, argument against the OECD's approach is the fact that Amount A is very tailored, as I had mentioned, since it will apply to about 100 companies. That could change as, you know, Pillar 1 grows older. But that narrow scope is problematic for some developing countries because they say that most companies operating within their jurisdictions won't fall under amount A and they would like the scope to be expanded so that medium-sized companies would be taxable. So are we hearing from individual countries taking out these various positions? Yes. So Uh, I think the first country to mention here would be the United States. I would say that things are looking pretty tenuous. While the Biden administration supports Pillar 1, the problem is that it will be difficult to get congressional approval for the multilateral convention uh, simply because the U.S. needs a two-thirds majority in the Senate to ratify the MLC. And Senate Republicans, congressional Republicans in general, have made it clear that they want to protect America's sovereignty. And some of them feel as though Pillar 1 Amount A would result in a global tax surrender, as some have called it, uh, which would allow foreign governments to tax revenues of U.S. companies. So within the U.S., it's pretty uncertain as to whether or not Pillar 1 can be approved by Congress. Two countries to also mention would be Kenya and Nigeria. They're both also reluctant to eliminate their uh, digital services taxes. They are two members of the inclusive framework that have not signed on to the political agreement. And they're also concerned with the scope of Pillar 1. They feel that it's too small and doesn't capture enough companies operating in their jurisdictions. On the other hand, we see that the European Union as a bloc, that it does support Pillar 1, and in fact, it plans to rely on it as a funding source for the entire EU. So they definitely have been a proponent of Pillar 1 and have been uh, pushing for countries to approve that regime and approve the future multilateral convention that will be issued. 
Support for this podcast is provided by Practicing Law Institute. Check out Practicing Law Institute's tax planning program taking place this spring. This popular three-day event brings together esteemed faculty for an insightful review of the legislative, regulatory, and judicial developments in Subchapter K and important partnership transactions, controversies, and trends. For more details and to register, visit pli.edu slash taxplanning23. That's pli.edu slash taxplanning23. Are there any ways that the Pillar 1 plan can be updated to address the various concerns of uh, of the parties? Yes, well, I would hope that we should expect to see some updates compared to the uh, draft rules that were released at the end of December. So at the end of December, the OECD, you know, launched a consultation on Pillar 1 and then released some draft MLC provisions that address digital services taxes and relevant similar measures. And it received comments from less than three dozen commentators, and they represent multinationals, the business community, developing countries, and civil society. So the OECD will take those comments into account. So from that perspective, there definitely is room to update Pillar 1. Now, one thing to point out is that the OECD um, is going to create a specific list of prohibited unilateral measures. And it has stated that a special group, which is called the Task Force on the Digital Economy, will be involved in creating that list. However, that process will not be open to the public. Whether or not that is subject to change is unclear. Some stakeholders have asked the OECD to open that process up for input by the business community, but nothing has been stated there. So with all that in mind, and the idea that this Pillar 1 plan is supposed to bring stability, do you think that it will bring stability to the international tax system? You know, that's a very good question. That is an open question. And I think it depends on how you define stability and from whose perspective you're defining it. Based on the draft rules that were released, it's clear that they were crafted to give countries flexibility. And I say that because inclusive framework members that sign the multilateral convention or ratify the multilateral convention are supposed to remove their digital services taxes. That being said, the draft rules say that countries that maintain DSTs simply won't receive their amount A allocation. And the draft rules also stated that the OECD is thinking about whether or not countries that do maintain DSTs can potentially receive a partial allocation, amount A allocation, depending on the scope of their DST. So all of that means that in this universe that the model rules have created, that there potentially is space for inclusive framework members to create DSTs or maintain existing DSTs. So if you're looking at this from the perspective of a large digital company, large multinational, or from the perspective of the US government, whose companies are most affected by these DSTs, that is not very reassuring. Because from their perspective, the purpose of Pillar 1 is to completely eliminate DSTs, you know, to completely eliminate the need for DSTs. And if a significant portion of countries decide that DSTs are more lucrative than amount A, then 
that approach isn't resolving the problem. But if you're approaching this from the perspective of countries that are not headquartered jurisdictions for these 100 amount A companies, I think that for them, stability hinges on their ability to maintain some sort of sovereignty and decide what will work best for them, whether that's unilateral measures or amount A, and also working within their own legal and constitutional constraints and implementing rules that, you know, will stand up to constitutional or legal scrutiny. Well, that just leads me to my last question, which is, is Pillar 1 the right mechanism for dealing with DSTs, assuming that eliminating DSTs is the ultimate goal? I think that's an interesting question because we don't have an alternative mechanism that we can use to make a side-by-side comparison with Pillar 1. But I will say this. Um, I will say that judging by the fact that inclusive framework members continue to participate in the process, I think that shows that jurisdictions do have faith in the process that they have started that Pillar 1 will create some stability and that the negotiations will create a final product that meets their interests, you know, whatever that may be. Well, all right. This is definitely an issue that we'll be tracking for some time to come. Amma, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Dave. And now, coming attractions. Each week, we highlight new and interesting commentary in our magazines. Joining me now is Executive Editor for Commentary, Jasper Smith. Jasper, what will you have for us? Thanks, Dave. In Tax Notes Federal, Stephen Curtis and Ruven Aviona break down Microsoft's cost-sharing arrangement and explain how corporate taxpayers have been able to exploit the cost-sharing regulations to shift profits offshore with little or no IRS detection or enforcement. Three KPMG practitioners explain the credibility criteria of the new U.S. foreign tax credit final regulations. In Tax Note State, Tony Santiago interviews Tim McDonald, retired vice president of global tax at Procter & Gamble, on how young tax leaders should build, develop, and retain their teams. Scott Peterson examines some of the ongoing issues in sales tax and discusses the potential effects of these issues in 2023. In TaxNotes International, Peter Mason reviews the development of the arm's length principle and questions whether this basis of transfer pricing is still fit for the modern digital age or if an alternative formulary apportionment basis may be better suited. Richard Ray examines the tax implications of the Canada-U.S. tax treaty for individuals who are citizens of one country but live and work in the other. And finally, in featured analysis, Carrie Brandon Elliott reviews the 897 regs that clarify the exemption from FERPTA for foreign pension funds. That's it for this week. You can follow me online at taxstew, that's S-T-E-W, and be sure to follow at TaxNotes for all things tax. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for a future episode, you can email us at podcast at taxanalyst.org. And as always, if you like what we're doing here, please leave a rating or review wherever you download this podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Notes Talk is a production of Tax Notes. You can learn more about us by visiting www.taxnotes.com podcast. When major media wants the straight story, they turn to Tax Notes. Thank you for listening and join us again for another edition of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Analyst Inc. does not provide tax advice or tax preparation services. Nothing in the podcast constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice. A full disclaimer is included in the transcript.